So maybe you like me, and you really started thinking seriously about getting married. Uh, something in your psyche may have changed. I know for me, I started wearing buttons more often on my shirt. Uh, I started flossing. And, and those things are funny. Uh, some of my preparation was more serious than that. I started reading more books about marriage. And I started, started to counsel from, from godly men and, and godly women. I prayed more about my future. I prayed that, that God would help me love my wife like Christ loves the church. You know, I just, I found myself up in certain places and smoothing out some of the refuges in my life. The reason was is because I was preparing to be a more godly husband. I realized that being a leader meant that I was going to be held to a higher standard. I'm starting to feel that again as Jackie and I start to think more seriously about looking forward to having our own kids. I have to start thinking about our budget differently, right? I might have to upgrade that Buick out, out there, 1997 limited LeSabre, but it may need to be more reliable. <laughs> I start thinking about eating out less because diaper bills are real. Uh, again, on a more serious note, I also need to think, think about how am I going to budget my time better for the increasing demands of serving my wife and children? I need to think more about how to carry out discipline in a godly way. I've started praying that I can learn how to be a godly dad, but also learn how to be a husband to a wife who's one day going to be a mother. And so I feel once again that as my responsibilities increase, the expectations of holiness on my life increase right along with it. I can't live like 16-year-old Will anymore. I can still look like him, but I can't live like him. Leadership requires holiness. So today, we're going to study more laws concerning the leaders of the people of God. We're going to zoom in and focus on the priest. And so we've already seen that the priest had all kinds of important jobs, but their most important job was especially their work in the sacrifices. Today, we're going to see that the leadership that they had was accompanied by a higher standard of holiness. Again, we are going to see that leadership requires holiness. Now, you might already be thinking, if this is a lesson about the priest and the leadership, then it doesn't apply to me. Now, obviously, this text will more easily apply to certain people. Right? It's going to apply to the spiritual leaders of the church, to those and to the deacons. But when I say leader, I want you to also understand that it applies to teachers, and it applies to managers, and it applies to parents, and it applies to husbands and older siblings and things like that. And even if you don't lead in an official capacity, it applies, because maybe one day you will. And even still, there may be people around you, even though you don't hold an official title, who follow you, who look up to you, who necessarily lead. And finally, be reminded, brothers and sisters, that the church is a holy priesthood set apart to model godliness to the nations. So when God's to the Old Testament priest, he means to communicate something to the priesthood of all believers. And that's you. It's for all of us. Also, as we get into this text this morning, you may be tempted to think at some point, if you haven't already, after listening to Amber read the text, oh yeah, that's why I breeze past Leviticus. None of this stuff seems that important to me anymore. 
Uh, but I want to caution you against that kind of thinking. Okay, this, this isn't just a study of ancient world religions. Right? We're, not, we're not just preparing for a history test or skimming the National Geographic. Okay, these aren't just a bunch of random people in some distant land from a long time ago doing a bunch of weird stuff. That's not what we're doing this morning. We are engaging with an eternal God. We are studying how he demands to be worshipped, how he expects people to lead the way in obedience and in holiness. So when we, when we study text, as we get into this, as Sean already mentioned, don't forget, all of Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for godness. So while no priesthood today, and there's no temple, and there's no daily sacrifices, there are many important principles that God has communicated to us for today. Okay, so I hope you are ready to hear what God has to say this morning. All reservations are put aside. Here's how this text is broken down. We're in chapters 21 and chapters 22. I think it starts, if you don't have your, your Bible in the Black Bible, I believe it's page 99. Chapters 21 and 22 of Leviticus, they're split, split in sections by a recurring pattern. And it goes like this. God tells Moses to address a certain group, and then he ends the address by saying something like, I am the Lord who sanctifies. And that phrase, I'm the Lord who sanctifies, or something very similar to it, is repeated over and over and over again. It's as the Lord is, is pausing every few moments just to make sure that everyone understands that I'm saying all of this because you must be holy as I am holy. You must be holy as I am holy. So here's an example of how that works. In chapter 1, verse 1, God starts by addressing the priest. Then he ends verse 15 by saying, I'm the Lord who sanctifies. And then again in verse 16, God tells Moses to instruct Aaron, who is a priest, tells him several things, and he ends in verse 23 by saying, I'm the Lord who sanctifies them, and so on. He does it five times in chapter 21 through 22, which makes really nice divisions in your Bible there. What I want to do is I want to connect the overarching theme of all of these passages. And the theme is this, as you might have guessed, leadership requires holiness. So if you're taking notes, Here's your outline. I have five points for you this morning. Point number one, leaders make sacrifices. Point number two, leaders are above reproach. Point number three, leaders have integrity. Number four, leaders repent. And number five, Christ or leader. If you didn't get them all just then, I'll be repeating them as we go. So point number one, leaders make sacrifices. In verses 1 through 6, if you look here, we see that the priests have to give up certain rights when comes to their families. So remember that in the Old Testament, touching a dead body or even being in the same room as a dead body made you ceremonially unclean. Also remember that being ceremonially unclean, that doesn't mean necessarily that you're in sin or that you've done something sinful. God uses the word unclean to signal to his people that things like death and skin disease are the result of sin, and there was living a fallen world. So, when a Jew was ceremonially unclean, he had certain restrictions on his life until he was purified, until he practiced or until he went through the purification rites, and then came clean. So for the Israelites, it was just a matter of regular practice, that whenever loved ones or friends died, you were going to become unclean. And again, I just want to say, it wasn't sinful they willfully became unclean by going and burying their friends or their family members. But what's happened here is that for the priests, we see that there's some limitations. 
on this. They weren't allowed to make themselves unclean, just anyone, right? So look at verse 1. No one, talking to the priest, shall make himself unclean for the dead among his people, except for his closest relatives, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, or his virgin sister, who is near to him because she has no husband. For her, he may make himself unclean. So, the priest can bury most of his family. That's it. He isn't allowed to bury his best friend. He isn't allowed to bury a venerated member of the community. But it goes further than that. You notice, he's actually not even allowed to bury his own wife. Look at verse 4. He shall not make himself clean as a husband among his people. Seems pretty strict. And for the high priest, there's another restriction added on top of them. Look again at verse 11. This is the high priest. He shall not go into any dead bodies, nor make himself unclean, even for his father or for his mother. So in one sense, you see here that the Lord is upholding the, the vow family. Right? The family is good. Family is important. It should hold a special place in our heart. And that's why the Lord makes some provisions for the priests to be able to bury some of their family. However, at the same time, God strongly communicates that the family is not the single most important thing in the universe. There are many times when we need to sacrifice the family vacation or we need to lead the family away from sports that interfere with Sunday worship. Or it may mean that we have to move the family away from our relatives that we're close with to go off somewhere else that the Lord is calling us to. Those sacrifices are never easy. But holiness very often requires us to make them. It reminds me, maybe it has for you already, of Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 10. Whoever loves father or mother more than me, not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me, is not worthy of me. Now to be sure, God is not just trying to be cruel to the priest here. God is good. What's happening is, is that these commands are given because the priests have a critically important job. He gives us a reason. Verse 6, he says, They shall be holy to God and not profane the name of their God. For they offer the Lord's food offerings, the bread of their God. Therefore, they shall be holy. So if the priest is unclean, he cannot do his job until he is purified. And it takes time. And there's a long process that goes into that happening. So while he is unclean, he can't go to the presence of God. He's, it says here in verse 6, to offer the Lord's food, the bread of their God. He can't sacrifice ants on the altar. When the priest is unclean, he is effectively stuck on the sidelines. When his team needs him most. The Israelites, the people of God, they depend on the priest. They depend on them to clean so they can go and make sacrifices for sin on their behalf. So what that means is this. Being a leader sometimes means sacrificing a good thing for a better thing. For the priest, even bearing family members is not as important as intercede for the people of God. There's another example of how the priests have to make sacrifices. The priest and high priest were up to a higher standard of mourning. Verse 5. Verse 5 reads, They shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. 
These actions were signs of, of thing, and they were mixed with some superstition. They, they were very common practices among the pagans, as a matter of fact. And so God forbid not only the priests from doing this, but previously in Leviticus, he's forbid all the Israelites from doing these things. However, not uncommon for the Israelites to mourn very, very, very strongly. They would tear their clothes. They would wear sackcloth, which was just like really uncomfortable and very abrasive on their skin. They would cover it in ashes and they would sit in the dust. And they might do this for days and days at a time. You can think of Job as, as a quick example. But these mourning practices, while by themselves are not wrong, they weren't afforded to the priest or to the high priest. We see down in verse 10 that the high priest had to stay well-kempt and dressed for duty. Right? It's like this. The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose, nor tear his clothes. The point is, is the priest had to be ready to make sacrifices. He had to be prepared, be ready to do his task, to do his, do his job. Excuse me. We're not there yet. Think of the brokenhearted mom or the pastor, right? Their responsibility doesn't take the day off just because they're struggling. Uh, diapers still need changing. And Sunday is still coming. So you see, Elise isn't given the luxury of being over-emotional, uh, of being completely out of control in their emotions. When you are a leader, people depend on you. Sometimes we can be so full of self-pity and, and groaning and sadness that we just stop fulfilling these. We, we feel ourselves grinding to a halt. I just want to say that many times, that's normal. It's just it's part of living in a fallen world. So I don't want you to feel unnecessarily guilty that you may experience that in your own life. It's rolling. What I do want to say, and what we see here in this text, is that for the priest and for many leaders, sometimes you have to sacrifice those rights. Sometimes you're not afforded that luxury. Priests can be sad, but he can't be given over to despair and to endless self-pity. Priest has to wipe away his tears, and he has to always be ready to do his job. Point number number: leaders are above reproach. Leaders are above reproach. One of the main ways to evaluate a leader is to look at his family. So, because of that, God holds the priest to a higher standard of marriage. In this passage, God is particularly interested in whom they marry. Right, a big part of the work of leading a godly home, is marrying a godly spouse. And that's why God is saying this. Look at verse 7. A priest shall not marry a prostitute or a woman who has been defiled. Neither shall they marry a woman divorced from her husband. For the priest is holy to his God. And in verse 10, God's widows to the list of prohibitions for the high priest of, of people that they can't marry. A few reasons for this. I've got three of them for why the priests were held to a higher standard marriage. And the first one is this. God's good design is that marriage would be would, would between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage for life. So things like divorce, things like prostitution, things like remarriage, these things ultimately fall short of God's perfect design. And they're declared unclean for the priest. Okay? Secondly, it reflects poorly on the priest 
if he marries an ungodly spouse. Being a leader requires being above reproach. It means not only must a leader be holy, but a leader also must not appear unholy. Okay? It's just a fact that people pay keen attention to your family life, to your household. If your spouse is ungodly, that will often be broadcast back out into the world. So one of our steps to being above reproach and to modeling a godly home is to marry someone who themselves is already living a godly life. The third reason they're held to our standard in marriage. Verse 15 tells us this other one pretty plainly. The reason is so that his offspring, or so that he, that he may profane his offspring among his people. We've looked before about how one of the main purposes of marriage is to produce godly offspring. So what does marriage have to do with priest children living a holy life? Well, it's pretty simple. Marrying ungodly partners more easily leads to raising ungodly offspring. Therefore, it's important not only that the high, that the high priest's wife would be godly, but that they would raise godly children and that their whole household would be above reproach. That leads us to another example. Just tell them hold an entire standard in marriage, but we see an example of this applying to their children as well. So look at verse 9. And the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by whoring, profanes her father, shall be burned with fire. Okay, so this may sound confusing. You remember what we've already said about most sexual sin and the punishment for most sexual sin. And that is stoning, right? So I still think that's the case here, right? This doesn't mean that she should be burned at the stake with fire. This reference to being burned with fire uh, it describes what happens to her after stoning. This is talking about creeping. So, to some of us, the difference between burial and cremation may not seem that serious. There's the whole topic we get into there. But the point for this text is this. That in a culture that understood the body to be a good thing, and, and for burial rites to be an important, important right, to have her body burned with fire was a very strong message from the Lord of his judgment against her. That he is not going to take this profane of her life and the priest's life lightly. And we see that, right? Notice that the sin doesn't just reflect poorly on herself, but it also reflects poorly on her father. I mean, and think about it, right? She, she has grown up in the house of a priest whose full-time job is to study the word, to teach the word, and then to go and practice and carry out religion in every aspect of the lives of the people of Israel. She would have grown up around this. She would have been around this 24-7. Or at least she should have been. Proverbs 22, verse 6 says, Train a child in the way she should go, and when she is old, she will not depart from it. Now it's important to realize that this, this proverb is just that. It's a proverb. It's a general truth. It's not a promise. But nevertheless, if a priest's daughter lacks godliness to the point that she is a prostitute, it's going to raise questions on whether or not that priest can dwell. It should. Therefore, God gives his hard command to punish her for sexual sin in order to head off any poor parenting in the home from the priest so that his name would be above reproach. God is sending a strong message both to the priest and the children of the priest that God leaders should be above reproach and should lead godly homes. Point number three. 
leaders have integrity. Leaders have integrity. Being a priest was a matter of birth. If you were a priest, then you were a descendant of Aaron. However, if you were a priest born with physical blemishes, you could not serve at the altar. You couldn't go through the tent, the first love tent or the second tent. Now, this might strike us as a very harsh command. It seems that God is being unfair or unkind to some people just because of the physical appearance, or as if God has something against people who are physically handicapped. What I want to do is I just simply, first thing, I want to reaffirm to you what you already know. Okay? God cares more about what's on the inside than what's on the outside. God loves the disabled just like everyone else. We see that in Jesus' own ministry. He was healing the disabled. He was repeatedly having compassion on them, the gospel writers say. And there's this beautiful parable that is about the wedding feast. And it says, when you give a feast, and the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Of course, that parable was teaching us about heaven. As brothers and sisters, heaven's tables will be filled with people who were once disabled. And God will love them too. So then, what's going on here with the priest? You have to understand that many of the objects and many of the commands in the Old Testament are pointing to a spiritual reality. For example, God doesn't care about misfabrics, right? If you wear clothes that have more than, than uh, one fabric in it. But that was a law in the Old Testament. God, God cared that you plant a field that had more than one seed in it, ultimately. But that was a law in the Old Testament. What God was communicating and what he was telling the Israelites was a spiritual thing. He was saying to them, don't mix the pagans and thereby start worshiping and mixing yourself with foreign gods. It was about, about idolatry. Well, in the same way, God doesn't ultimately care about the physical blemishes of these priests. But he does care that they are without blemish on the inside. God wants his preach, his, his priest to be spiritually blameless. That's what he's saying. But let's go a little further than that. Notice that the priest only has to have one blemish in order to be barred from regular priestly duties. If it is normal, except just crooked hands, then he is disqualified. Doesn't matter if he has a great smile, great hair, everything about him seems perfect, that one blemish disqualified him. That's a really high beauty standard, right? right? But remember, being a leader includes being held to a higher standard, especially in our character. So for example, let's, let's think about the elder and deacon qualification and, and parse this out a little bit. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, just to name a few of them, be sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. First, talking about leaders here, but I want you to notice that these elder qualifications are something that all Christians should strive for. Uh, secondly, uh, I want you to notice uh, what would happen if an elder checked off all of these qualifications except just one of them. He's a great preacher, but he has serious drinking problem. Or he's a great pastor, but he gets so mad that he punched a hole in the wall. That one blemish, even amongst all the other things he does so well, just became a serious problem, a serious blemish on his ability to lead. Being a leader doesn't mean that you are sinless, okay? But it does mean 
that you should be exemplary in many things, satisfactory in other things, and not characterized by ungodliness anything. Should not be an exceptionally bad example in any one particular area. Of course, if we're going to talk about leaders and, and looking like they have blemishes on the outside, it needs to be said that we live in an Instagram culture, right, with all of our filters. And so too often today, the preacher with the best smile and the best coat, he's the one who's considered, he must be, be the most godly. But as we've already said, God looks at the heart. So as Christians, we have to evaluate godliness not based on the external, but based on the internal. And not only do we need to judge leaders like that, we have to take that same approach with ourselves. We have to look and say, is my beauty on the inside what's most important to me? Because it's more, be- it's more important than the beauty that's on the outside. Or to say it in a, simple, uh, in a verse from Paul, training up the body is of some value, but godliness has value in all things. So, leaders have integrity. Point number four, leaders repent. Look at verse three, where Moses again addresses Aaron and the priest. If any one of all your offspring throughout your generations approaches the holy things that the people of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from presence on the Lord. So I've already mentioned that if for any reason the priest is unclean, then he has to abstain from his duties uh, in the temple or in the, or in the tabernacle. And the process for being purified, it varies based off the circumstances. But you had to do things like bathing or burning fabrics or spend some time outside the camp before you became ritually purified and ritually clean. When the priest became unclean then, here's what happened. The most important thing on his, his mind was to become clean again. When, when a leader becomes unclean, he pursues becoming clean again. And so I think to put it in a principle, it's, it's very simple. A leader takes his sin seriously. It's a shame that Christians are far too often viewed as being self-righteous. It's just something that we're known for in the public. The opposite should be the case. We should be the kind of people that are the first people to come to people's mind when they think about humility and self-accountability. Uh, just think of First John chapter 1. This is, our Lord tells us this. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Christians know they sin. And a, a godly person, a godly Christian who is maturing in the Lord, they're only going to be uh, noticing that and admitting that more and more freely. That they're a sin in need of grace. But for a leader, it's especially true. A leader is held to a high standard. A leader should meet that standard. But they don't always. And so a godly leader should also model what it means to be repentant when they don't meet that standard. Leadership includes role modeling repentance. Here's what that means. Leaders are transparent about their mistakes instead of trying to cover them up. It includes admitting weaknesses and asking for prayers from those people whom you lead. Leaders who role model repentance they don't, don't just cliches. Right? They don't give the easy answer. You know, yeah, I messed up, but nobody's perfect. That's not godly repentance. Rather, they lead through full-throated repentance. 
and they carry out concrete and tangible change for their sins. And when they say they repent, they don't just say they're sorry, but they do something about it. That's godly repentance. But don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Be purified isn't a matter of saying sorry in the exact right way and following it up with white-knuckle obedience. To better understand being purified or becoming clean, we need to look at the final point. Christ, our leader. If you don't hear anything I've said today, which I hope you have, I want you to hear this point. The priests were responsible for making sure that perfect animals without any blemish were sacrificed on the altar. Let's look at verse 20. You shall not offer anything that has a blemish. And then a little further down, verse 21, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. If the animal wasn't perfect, then the sacrifice wasn't accepted on your behalf. That means your sins weren't forgiven. That's a big deal. It's not list all the defects animals couldn't have. Explains it to them. They could be blind, could be disabled, they could have skin disease, and so on. But I also want you to notice that this list is very similar to the list of blemishes for the priest. So not only must the sacrifice be without blemish, but so must the priest. And so let's, let's put those together. And here's what we learn. Forgiveness for sins requires a perfect priest offering a perfect sacrifice to a holy God. Forgiveness of your sins requires a perfect priest offering a perfect sacrifice to a holy God. But why? Why in the world does God care that the priest not have any physical blemishes and that this animal be perfect? Well, to be sure, God doesn't ultimately care what the priests look like. And he doesn't only care about the animals. He t- tells that he does not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Just like I mentioned before, these laws were pointing forward to something else. And something else is Jesus Christ. Jesus is both the perfect high priest and the perfect sacrifice. Like a perfect high priest, he gave up certain rights. He humbled himself. He temporarily, temporarily laid aside his divine form. And he came down to earth in the likeness of sinful flesh. He chose to come as a modest man. Now, Jesus didn't have the best smile or the best physique. He was just average. He was also the high priest who lived with perfect integrity. He never broke any commands. He never sinned in his heart. He was tempted like us, but he never placed a foot in the wrong place. And even though he lived a life that truly was above reproach, he was criticized. And he was criticized by the very people that he came to save. He was called a blasphemer. He was accusing a demon. He was despised. He was rejected. He was mocked. And he never did anything to earn any of these insults. He never did anything to repent of for men. He never did anything to repent of before his heavenly Father. He was perfect. And he is perfect. And as a perfect high priest, in meeting all these standards, he came to do a job. 
and he never turned aside from doing that job. He came to offer a perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And that sacrifice was a bull or a goat without blemish. It was his own perfect sin life that was offered up to God on our behalf. No one took his life from him, but Jesus laid down his life of his own accord. And he was crucified. And he was buried. He was sacrificed. And God the Father, who said that he would accept such a sacrifice, did accept the sacrifice. And we have proof that he received it because he raised him from the dead. And now offers forgiveness to anyone who repents of their sins and believes in Jesus Christ and his work. And so I just have to say, praise be to our high priest. And worthy is the lamb who was slain. I want to apply this to three different groups of people this morning, this particular last point. I want to make a special plea to those of you who do not believe in Jesus Christ. I wonder if it kept the priests up at night when they were laying there and they were thinking, you know, I offered the animal and am perfect? Am I really without blemish? I mean, truly? And I wonder if they replay the animal that they inspected and put on the altar and think, did I miss something? You know, maybe I gave myself a little bit of, of crate here and it was a little bit easy on this one part of the animal that was perfect. I mean, the Lord said the animal has to be perfect and without blemish. Is it really? They should have been asking that. That was the whole point. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, particularly my, my friends in here who do not know Christ, if you are here today and you haven't received Jesus Christ's sacrifice for your sins, do not deceive yourself. You are not perfect. You are not without blemish. And you need a sacrifice to be made on your behalf. And Christ is that sacrifice. And if you will receive him, if you will repent of your sins and trust on him, trust in his work, you will be saved and you will be spared the wrath of God. To the Christians in the room, the ultimate aim of this text is almost obvious that we can miss it. It's not that we would be holy like the Israelites or holy like the priest or even holy like the high priest. These are all imperfect examples, shadows of the real thing. The ultimate aim of this text is that we would be holy as God is holy. That's a high standard. <laughs> so not only have we been purified and cleansed of our sins because of Christ's sacrifice, but brothers and sisters, he has empowered us by his spirit we received the Holy Spirit and a heart of flesh has replaced a heart of stone. We can live whole lives. We can pursue godliness. Every single day, week, year, our trajectory should be, I am more holy than I was. And I'm doing holiness to be as holy as God is holy. To put it in the words of today's text, the last few verses. So the Lord says to his people, So you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane my holy name that I may be sanctified among the people of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You must be holy. And I am the one who is making you holy. 
And in Christ, that reality has come. Praise be to God. So the heartful gratitude for grace keeps striving for holiness, brothers and sisters. And finally, to the spiritual leaders of our church. Like I said before, this text is applicable to us all. But it is especially applicable to our elders. So I know I'm the young man, and I don't presume to stand in the position of this judge over these men's lives. But Sean and Grant, I wish Grant was here. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for the way that you model godliness. Your sacrifices, your families, the way that you uphold personal inte- integrity. When you don't, the way you model repentance, it gives us a better glimpse into the character of Jesus Christ. And so may I only exhort you and as encourage family, we continue to back our pastors. Keep doing holiness. Keep striving. I think it is appropriate on a text about leadership to allow Peter to get the final word in his exhortation to the elders. He says this. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you receive the unfading crown of glory. So church, follow godly leaders as they follow Christ. And may we all be godly leaders in every aspect of our lives. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, Lord, for setting your people apart and calling us to holiness in it. All of your splendor and all of your glory as you really are. And we will be transformed into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We long for that day. In his name, amen.